this is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church, and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Amara, Caleb, Joanna, Sam, Caleb, and Tim. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions. Then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end by answering a few fun questions. Let's get started. We're going to tackle two serious questions this time, one from Amara and one from Caleb. Amara asks a great question about our current sermon series on Zechariah. She asks, why did you choose to preach on Zechariah? There are a lot of good reasons why a church like ours should study the prophet Zechariah. But Amara, I'm going to give you two big reasons why I think this is an important book for us to be studying right now. So reason number one is this. Zechariah, when it comes to Old Testament prophets, gets a lot less attention than his prophecy really deserves. I talked about this in an episode of The Commentary a couple of weeks ago, but it's surprising how rarely churches these days talk about the prophecy of Zechariah. It's especially strange considering how important Zechariah's prophecy is in the New Testament. His prophecies are often cited by New Testament authors, and I think we can see by now as we have been going week by week over the course of this year through the book of Zechariah, why he was so important to the apostles, to the authors of the New Testament. Because Zechariah's prophecy really brings into sharp focus who the Messiah is supposed to be, what the characteristics of the coming anointed one are so that you can recognize him. It's no accident that in the New Testament, in order to prove that Jesus is the one who was promised, they would cite Zechariah, because there are a lot of points in Zechariah where he is giving really Jesus-like pictures of the work that the Messiah is going to do. So that's one reason, that, that this is a book that we should be a lot more familiar with than Christians typically are. Let me give you a second reason. It has to do with the kind of book that Zechariah is. Now, of course, Zechariah is a book of prophecy, but within prophecy, it it majors on a specific genre, which is apocalyptic literature, right? Predicting the future. What is coming? What is God going to do in the age to come? Probably the most famous example of apocalyptic literature in the Bible would be the book of Revelation. And people have always been fascinated by the book of Revelation, trying to interpret its symbols and figure out what it all means. The problem is, we're not really good at interpreting this kind of writing. We don't have a lot of experience deciphering symbolism. And as a result, when we try to unpack apocalyptic symbolism in the Bible, oftentimes we do it in ways that are pretty misleading. So another great reason to study the book of Zechariah is that it kind of gives you the tools 
to interpret this kind of literature really well so that you can take those tools to bigger books and apply them. Zechariah is not that long of a book um, for minor prophets, maybe a little bit long, but, but compared to Ezekiel or, or to Jeremiah or Isaiah, uh, Zechariah is pretty manageable. So this is a book that we can sink our teeth into and develop some interpretation skills that will help us when we go to other harder, more symbolic parts of the Bible. Now Caleb has a serious question about God's holiness and his omnipresence. Caleb asks, if God can't be near to sin, and since he's everywhere, then he must be near to sin. This is a great question, Caleb. You will sometimes hear people say things like this, God cannot look upon sin, or God cannot tolerate sin in his presence. But when you hear that, it's natural to wonder, what can that mean? Because the same people who say things like that will also tell you that God is everywhere, that he's omnipresent. And it seems like if God is everywhere, and if sin exists somewhere, then there must be a place where sin is in the presence of God, where God does look upon sin. So what does that mean? Well, here's the simplest explanation. When people say God cannot look upon sin, they don't mean it in a woodenly literal way. They're not saying uh, God is blind to sin, like he just can't see it. It's invisible to him. He just doesn't know that sin is there. Um, thinking in those ways, interpreting that phrase that way, that it would be misunderstanding the way that the Bible speaks. Because when the Bible uses language like this, it uses it as a figure of speech. So you don't want to interpret it too woodenly. What words like this mean is that God doesn't put up with sin. God doesn't approve of sin or condone sin. Because God is perfectly holy, any unholiness is unacceptable to God. Let me give you an example in the Old Testament. This is in the book of Habakkuk, in, in chapter 1 of Habakkuk, verse 13. Speaking to God, Habakkuk says, You who are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? So when Habakkuk says that you have purer eyes than to see evil, that you cannot look at wrong. He's not trying to limit God's power. He's not saying God is powerless to see evil, that he's powerless to look at wrongdoing, right? Because he immediately follows up by saying that God does look at traitors, that he is aware. In fact, the, the whole question is, why, if you see this, are you permitting this to happen? So the point here is God's holiness. Evil and wrongdoing are an offense to God. They're abhorrent in his eyes. And so the prophet is asking, why don't you punish the thing that you cannot stand? Well, the answer is that God puts up with iniquity because he's merciful and, and he's patient. He waits out of love, but in the end, he will punish all sin. Now, if you believe in Jesus, then your sin has already been paid for at the cross. But if you reject Jesus, then you'll have to pay for your sin yourself. And you really don't want to do that. So 
This dilemma is a little bit of a false dilemma. There's really not a contradiction or a conflict between saying that God doesn't tolerate sin on the one hand and, and God is omnipresent. It's just a result of taking some figures of speech in a, a woodenly literal sense. As a general rule, anytime we read the Bible in a way that makes it contradictory, we need to ask ourselves if we're interpreting it the right way. Now it's time for the big question. I'm excited about this because today's big question is about church history. It comes from Joanna, and it sounds like she's been learning about the history of Christianity in the Roman Empire. Here's the question. Why did God help Constantine win a battle if he wasn't a Christian? Okay, so there's actually several different questions that we need to unpack in that question. So. One question is this, did God help Constantine win the battle of the Milvian Bridge? And we'll talk about that in a second. Uh, the second question is, was Constantine a genuine convert to Christianity? Was he really a Christian? There's actually, I guess, a third question here as well, which is this, does God help people who aren't Christians? Okay, so let's try to work through all of that. First of all, if you don't know already, let me explain who Constantine was. Constantine was the very first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. Constantine is the one who legalized Christianity in the Roman Empire. Before that, the practice of Christianity had been outlawed, and at various points during the first 300 years of Christianity, Christians would have been subject to persecution for living their faith, that ended during the reign of Constantine. He not only made it permissible, tolerated to be a Christian, but he himself advocated for Christianity and eventually became a Christian as well. In fact, it was Constantine who presided over the Council of Nicaea in AD 325. That council, among other things, is the one where the Nicene Creed that we use in church was written. So this battle that Joanna mentions is interesting. The Battle of the Milvian Bridge is what it's called, and as you can imagine, it was a battle around a bridge. Supposedly, the night before the battle, Constantine had a dream, and in this dream, he heard a voice that said, by this sign you will conquer, and the sign that he saw was one that, that uh, when we look at it in English, it looks like an X that has a P written through it, but in Greek, it's, it's actually a, a CH with an R written through it, a chi and a rho, which are the two first letters of the name Christ. And so this is used as a symbol of Christ's name. And so the story goes that the next morning, Constantine woke up and had all of the men paint this symbol on their shield, and then they went on to victory. Now, like a lot of stories from the ancient world, this one is disputed. Historians don't agree over whether this really happened, over whether Constantine made this story up later, or, or somebody else made it up later. It, it's hard to know. You'll find some who think it's genuine, some who think it's not. And to be honest with you, I'm not sure who's right and who's wrong. I think it's an interesting story. I don't 
necessarily expect God to do things like that, though. So, so who knows? Either way, either way, it raises an interesting question. So at the time that this happened, Constantine has not yet professed Christianity as his faith. So why would God be helping him out? Well, here's what's interesting. If you talk to Christians, even now, and ask them to look back on their life before they came to faith, it's not unusual for them to say, you know, I can see some signs of God working before I believed. Things that God did in my life that were preparing me, that were were kind of moving me in the direction of faith. So generally speaking, I don't think there's any problem with the idea that someone like Constantine might look back in hindsight and recognize that God was working in his life, that God was bringing him into a position where he could later not only become a Christian, but legalize the practice of Christianity. So there's another question, though, that we need to think about, uh, which is whether or not God helps non-Christians. Now, according to the Bible, the answer is clearly yes. God helps human beings regardless of whether or not they come to faith. In fact, there are countless blessings that God pours out on all creation and all human beings, regardless of whether they believe in him or not. We all owe so many good things to God that it is absolutely without doubt that there are people who do not believe in God and may never believe in God, but owe God a debt of gratitude for all of the kindness that he has shown them in blessings and in forbearance, patience over their sin. So did Constantine really become a Christian? We remember him as the first Christian emperor of Rome, but there are some people who look back on his life and some of his decisions, and they wonder whether his conversion was genuine. Well, personally, I do think that Constantine really did come to faith. Now, it may not have been a perfect faith. He may not have gotten everything right, but that's not unusual. Most of us don't get everything right. Well, let's be honest, none of us get everything right. I'm sure that hundreds of years from now, people could look back and ask similar questions about us. But remember, What saves us isn't getting everything right. It isn't making all of the right decisions or believing all the right things. What saves us is the grace of Jesus Christ. If you ask yourself, you know, how do I know that a person in history was really a Christian? Where you can look at their profession of faith. What did they say about what they believed? And you can look at their actions. What fruit did their life bear? But even then, it's not always easy to be sure, one way or the other. So I say, let's be generous. I like to err on the side of grace. And when I look at the good things that the Emperor Constantine did, even though he wasn't perfect, even though he also did bad things, I want to believe that his faith was genuine. For our last segment, we're going to answer three fun questions from Sam, Caleb, and Tim. 
Sam might have a building project coming up because he wants to know about measurements. His question is this, how big is a cubit? Now remember, a cubit is a unit of measurements that's used in the Bible. In Zechariah's visions that we've been talking about, we saw that the flying scroll measured 20 cubits across and 10 cubits high. A cubit corresponds to about 18 inches in our way of measuring. What people usually say is that it's the length on the average person, the average man, between the elbow and the fingertips, which works out to be roughly 18 inches. Um, Sam, your length between your elbow and your fingertips might not be 18 inches yet, but I think you should measure it, maybe get some help and measure it and see how far you have to go until your cubit measures cubit length. Our next question is from Caleb, and it sounds like Caleb must be pretty hungry because he asks, what is your favorite food? Well, my favorite food is the best food in the entire world, objectively speaking, and that would be Popeye's fried chicken. Obviously, I'm talking about the spicy fried chicken because nobody who has a choice would order anything but the spicy fried chicken. Now, that's the best food ever, and that's why it's my favorite, even though I don't get to eat it very often. There is a second best food, though, and that's Reese's peanut butter cups when you leave them in the freezer long enough for them to get really cold and hard. And then when you bite into them, they are objectively the second best food in the world. Now, Caleb's not the only one who's hungry, though. I think Tim is hungry, too. But Tim is ready to skip straight over the main course to dessert. He asks, do you like ice cream cake? Okay, well, let me think about that. So ice cream is good and cake is good. But cake that's made out of ice cream or ice cream that's made out of cake, that would definitely be great. I think you'd have to be crazy not to like that. And I am definitely not. Okay, well, even if you were crazy, you would probably like ice cream cake. So yes, Tim, I do like ice cream cake. And imagine what a feast it would be if we were to all sit down and eat Popeye's fried chicken followed by frozen Reese's peanut butter cups. And then to cap it all off, some ice cream cake. That sounds like the perfect meal. Thanks for your questions. Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. So until next time, keep asking the big questions.